In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. <coughs> Have you ever had a weird experience? <laughs> right? Now there's the normal kind of weird, right? In one, of the, in one of the little towns that I grew up in in Florida, there's exactly one stoplight in the town, or there was back when I was a teenager. And one afternoon, two sisters decided to have a head-on collision. That's weird. The better, the better thing, if you're from that town, you would know that their stepfather owned the only insurance agency in town, and it was on that intersection as well. So it was a surreal sight to see the two sisters standing in front of each of their cars and watch their dad come running across from his insurance agency with his hands raised in the air like, how could, how could you run into each other like that? That's a weird experience. But here I'm talking about the kind that I know you we know that we all know that I really mean here. The one that you preface when you start the conversation with, I know this sounds crazy, but it happened to me. Most of us have had those stories. Hold on to it for just a moment. For thus says the Lord God, I myself will search for my sheep, and I will seek them out. Now Ezekiel has a reputation as being a weird book, right? If somebody who's not a churchgoer has heard the prophet Ezekiel, it's usually because he's heard these stories about a wheel within a wheel, right? He's heard stories about the weird description of the angels and the cherubim. Ezekiel gives complex explanations for what the supernatural world looks like that sometimes it's hard for us to process because I think it was really hard for him to process it. This was not a dim reflection. He's not looking through a mirror. Like Paul says, he's looking at the supernatural and he just can't figure out what's going on. But the book's also weird for another reason. It's somewhat unique. The book opens like this. In my 30th year, in the fourth month of the fifth day, while I was with the exiles along the Khyber River, the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. A few verses later, he introduces himself by saying, Ezekiel the priest, the son of Buzi, by the Khyber River in the land of the Babylonians. Traditionally, we place Ezekiel as a prophet who's prophesying from the land of Babylon early in the captivity. It's been five years since the king of Judah went into exile. And unlike Daniel, Daniel gets to have these exciting experiences, right? He's thrown into a lion's den. His good friends are thrown into a furnace. And God takes care of them all. But where's Daniel living throughout all that? He's living in the emperor's palace. And unlike Jeremiah, who at the same time found himself carried off to Egypt by the refugees, by those fleeing the invasion, Ezekiel's a prophet and priest. And he's living amongst God's people, even as they're sitting there weeping along the rivers of Babylon. And yes, his first vision does have four living beasts and God's chariots and enough strangeness to float a million theories about what he saw that day. But that's not the important point. Ezekiel wrote this. As shepherds seek their flocks out when they're coming among the scattered sheep, so I will seek out my sheep. I'll rescue them from all the places to which they've been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. But all that weirdness he saw was not why Ezekiel was writing. He was writing to let God's people know that even though they're crying on the rivers of Babylon, God still cares for them. 
as their shepherd, he's going to come and look for them. Just like a normal shepherd would go and search for the lost sheep after there's been a big storm. And God will ride his chariot all over the world if he needs to. Just like he did when he found Ezekiel on the banks of the river at the beginning of the book. To make sure his promises come true. And why is this important? Because at the beginning of this chapter, God has called out the people he left in charge. The kings. Why did he call them out? It says this, Woe to you shepherds of Israel who only take care of yourselves. Should not shepherds take care of the flock? You eat the curds, you clothe yourself with the wool, and you slaughter the choicest animals, but you do not take care of the flock. You've not strengthened the, strengthened the weak, healed the sick, or bound up the injured. You've not brought back the strays or searched for them. Instead, you've ruled them harshly and brutally. The kings are in trouble because instead of taking care of God's people, they enrich themselves. They've just ignored the needy. And God says this, I will seek out the lost, I will bring back the stray, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weakened. But the fat and the strong I will destroy. I'll feed them with my justice. God is going to call his people back, and he's going to take care of them, like they should have been taken care of all along. And then he makes a promise. He says this, I'll set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he'll feed them. He'll feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be a prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. God promises that he will send someone, someone like his servant David. Someone who will lead them, shepherd them like they always have wanted to be, should have been shepherd. But it's not going to be David, but someone like him. We hear elsewhere that it's going to be one of his descendants. That when Messiah comes, will be like David. Be joyful in the Lord, all you lands. Serve the Lord with gladness and come before his presence with a song. Now this psalm is one historically that was sung during a Thanksgiving service in Solomon's temple where they were going to, when someone had fulfilled a vow and they were making their sacrifice to God. It's recorded in the Talmud that when, the, when this song started to be sung in the temple, it would be sung with harps and cymbals, but it would go out. And it says there'd be music on every corner, and people would slap every large boulder in Jerusalem. So when they were offering this Thanksgiving, when it was being made, everyone in Jerusalem would stop what they were doing and sing along and worship God. For the Lord is good, his mercy is everlasting, and his faithfulness endures from age to age. These are the words to live by and remember. Now, if you're a rule follower, and you're beating yourself up because you didn't follow the rules perfectly again, remember, the Lord is good, his mercy is everlasting, and his faithfulness endures from age to age. In every circumstance where we feel like no one cares, we can remember that our shepherd has promised to take good care of us, and that his promise has been good for millennia now. For the Lord is good, his mercy is everlasting, and his faithfulness endures from age to age. Paul writes, I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints. For this reason, I do not cease to give thanks to you for you as I remember you in my prayers. Now, Paul's writing to the Ephesians from prison. He's been in custody for several years at this point and hasn't seen them in the flesh for longer than that. And if it all seems a bit impersonal, 
know that when the church in Ephesus started, some people would have known Paul for years, would have known him intimately. When Paul arrived in Ephesus, he found a group of John the Baptist disciples who were still waiting to hear that when the Messiah would come. But for many in the church, he's just a story. Someone the old timers tell talk about, but someone they don't really know. But Paul says, listen, I've been praying for you all this whole time. And Paul writes this. God put this power to work in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. He put all things under his feet and made him the head over all things for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And Paul reminds it that in the end, our whole faith is built on the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. And that fact has given him power over everything, living and dead, natural and supernatural. For the Lord is good, his mercy is everlasting, and his faithfulness endures from age to age. Our gospel starts off in dramatic fashion, right? When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he'll sit on the throne of his glory. Now in our gospel, we're still in that same discussion. We're still early in Holy Week. Jesus is still talking with the disciples about what's going to happen at the end of all things. Jesus said that the end will be like ten bridesmaids that have been waiting for the groom to come. He says it's going to be like some servants who are waiting for the return of their master from a long trip. Remember, the groom comes, just not when we, they expected him to. The master returns, and here Jesus is describing his final coming. He's going to lead the vanguard of the heavenly hosts seated on his throne. And he says this, All the nations will be gathered before him, and he'll separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He'll put the sheep at his right hand and the goats at his left. In the last few weeks we've been talking about how society sees the end and they get fixated on things like wars and rumors of wars, earthquakes, pestilence, persecution, and famine. But society is also latched on to the idea of the sheep and the goats. If you were to say, ah, those, if you were to say something about sheep and goats to your average person, they'd have some vague idea of what you're talking about. Now, I've heard it over the years to be used to divide all sorts of people into the righteous and unrighteous. Preachers have said all sorts of things about who they think the sheep and goats really are. But let's stop this morning and listen to what Jesus said about it. Jesus said this, The king will say to those at his right hand, the sheep, Come, you that are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. Naked, you gave me clothing. I was sick, and you took care of me. I was in prison, and you visited me. Notice they're not being judged for any number of things that we've heard the sheep and the goats been used for sometimes. But Jesus is saying that the sheep, what did the sheep do that made the great shepherd happy? Same thing the king should have been doing to have made God happy, right? Feeding the hungry, welcoming the stranger, clothing those in need, taking care of the sick, and making sure those in prison are taken care of. Why? Because when we do the least to the least of these, we're doing it for Jesus. And what are the goats doing? Or more accurately, what are they not doing? What is it that upsets the great shepherd? 
The same thing that upset the great shepherd back in Ezekiel. They're not doing those things. They're not feeding the hungry. They're not welcoming strangers. They're not clothing those in need or taking care of the sick and not going to make sure those in prison are being taken care of properly. When they ask Jesus, when did we not take care of you? Jesus' response is not the one that we get in popular culture. It's not the one that we often get in popular theology. His response is, truly I tell you, just as you did not do it to the least of these, you did not do it for me. For the Lord is good, his mercy is everlasting, and his faithfulness endures from age to age. Today we celebrate the simple fact that the Messiah, promised by God for millennia, the second David has come. And although he sits on his throne, he's also our great shepherd. He went out and continues to go out, looking for sheep all around the world, just like he promised in Ezekiel's day. Paul's right, though. Christ has been given power over all things. But as his co-heirs, we're not simply called to stay and wait, to bury our talents and hoard everything against the end. No, we're called to follow the example of the Ephesians, to have love towards all the saints, and to go out to follow the example of our King, to love the least of those everywhere we find them. Amen.